if you're listening to this and you have never seen it or you're going to watch it again, I learned recently that when John Singleton was filming this, he didn't warn any of the actors when a gunshot was going to go off. And that's why their reaction seems so natural because they don't see it coming any more than you do. But there is this sort of overarching feel of dread. And, and some of it comes out from things that I think are handled really very deftly. For example, there one of the friends, one of the boys in the hood is a guy in a wheelchair named Chris. And you know, you don't know why he's in the wheelchair, but at some point when Lawrence Fishburne is trying to advise his son, you know, not to get involved with gangs and stay out of trouble, he says, you want to end up like little Chris, you want to end up in a wheelchair. And then you think, oh, that must have been from some sort of violent situation that happened off screen, but it's alluded to. And so you just get a sense for what it really was like to live in that neighborhood and, and be afraid all the time. Hello, and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. Today we're going to talk about Boys in the Hood and Daughters of the Dust, starting with Boys in the Hood, which came out in 1991, which I saw in the theater, and I absolutely loved this movie when it came out. I went back multiple times because I'd never seen anything like it, and I was just so touched by it. And going back to watch it again, I remembered how much I liked it and how I didn't realize at the time that it introduced me to some of the actors I have loved ever since. So watching it again, it was like, oh, oh Angela Bassett, oh, oh, Regina King, and of course, Cuba Gooding Jr. But it was like going back to a neighborhood where you didn't realize that's where you met a lot of people that you, you know, still looked for in terms of movies. How about you, Mike? Marie, likewise, I remember seeing it first run, and this film really had a freshness to it. It really was bracing in a lot of ways. It got a lot of critical recognition, which we'll be talking about in terms of the actors involved and the director and so on. But what struck me was the fact that it was fresh, but by the same token, it wasn't exactly out of nowhere. By that, I mean, I tend to see the film in a kind of generational way, in terms of waves of, of Black filmmakers. When I say waves, I mean generations of groups of. And in this specific case, uh, the name that has to be mentioned is Spike Lee. You know, Spike Lee in some ways is like a, almost like a mentor, spiritual godfather to uh, the next generation, the next younger generation. And let's let's put it in those terms, because that I think keeps it focused on, on the film itself. Because if you're a young Black filmmaker or aspiring filmmaker in those days, who would a role model be? It would have been Spike Lee. I mean, who really broke through in so many ways. And that was the case for John Singleton. John Singleton was born in 1968, so he's about 11 years younger than Spike Lee. So I think he more or less qualifies as next generation or near generation, if you will. Anyway, I want to give a quote from John Singleton, because this is his first film. I want to give a quote from him in terms of his formative influences. And yes, it's that name, Spike Lee. Here's what John Singleton said, and this was in a, an interview he did in 2013. So he's really thinking back on this film from 1991, and indeed, all the years prior to that when he wanted to be a filmmaker. Anyway, here's what he says. When I was 18, I saw Spike Lee's She's Gotta Have It. The movie was so powerful to me as a young Black teen who grew up seeing movies with not a lot of people who looked like me. And then in another interview, he talked along the same lines in terms of what a movie like that or movies like Spike's did for him. He said, quote, the cinema saved me from being a delinquent. I love that sensibility when you think about the, the, how you grow up and, and where you grow up and, and what makes you who you become. 
the way that, you know, you watch movies and yeah, we're all movie buffs, but at a certain point you get hooked thinking, I can do that. I want to do that. His own circumstances were not exactly dire or, or, or dangerous, if you will. He grew up in Los Angeles, John Singleton, in a middle-class family, you know, fairly stable family life that way. And yet he certainly would have been aware of the challenges and the risks and, and the paths you could go down, down that weren't so uh, so nice, I'll put it that way, and other options that might be more encouraging professionally and personally. Anyway, cutting to the chase on this, he really did pursue his dream of, yeah, I, I like this movie and I want to make movies and follow in, in the wake that way. So indeed, he studied script writing at the University of Southern California. And what's really inspirational for me reading those biography is he wrote the screenplay for Boys in the Hood when he was a senior in college. And, you know, he, this was an idea that he really wanted to work on. And what also strikes me as inspirational is he then approached Columbia Pictures, you know, one of the major studios. Uh, not only did they agree to do it, but they agreed to his terms. Now, this is really kind of, uh, I'll call it nervy. Nervy in the sense that he said, okay, you know, um, you can buy my, my screenplay, option the rights, all that, on the condition that I get to direct it. <laughs> how many uh, studios, frankly, in, in any kind of profession, like how many people would, would say, okay, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll go with you on that one. But I think it's like really, really heartening that a major studio would do that. They recognize the, the worth of the script, of course, but also, frankly, taking a chance commercially, right? You know, millions of dollars tied up in a film. But that is so inspiring to think about a studio that would say, well, you know, Spike Lee's done reasonably well in a commercial sense as a director, and here's somebody a little bit younger, and here's his script, and yeah, let's go, let's do it. So now let's talk about what they did. Well, you know, from the very beginning, and of course, I don't remember this at the time, but watching it again so many years later really struck me is how it grabs you from the opening. You know, you see the Columbia pictures logo with what I refer to as Betty Crocker holding a torch. And already it's overlaid with the sound of sirens and gunshots and chaos. So you know immediately you are being thrust right into the center of the story before the, you know, it, it is even open, before Betty Crocker's, you know, left the image. So it it really grabs you from the very beginning and gives you a heads up that, you know, this is going to get real, real fast. You know, I'll never think about the Columbia logo in the same way again. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's a thing at this point. But you make a really astute observation about the fact that you're just plunged into it in medias res. You're just thrown right into the story, into the environment, basically. An environment counts for a lot here, a certain urban environment and the characters within it and those who are kind of trapped within it and those trying to get out in various ways. And again, Singleton's, you know, strong autobiographical impulse of knowing that world, if you will, knowing those characters. But again, one thing I'll add to that, that opening barrage of images and sounds and so on, there also are statistics cited at the beginning of the film. And they, they give, this is an exact quote of, of what they say. One out of every 21 black American males will be murdered in their lifetime. Most will die at the hands of another black male, close quote. Now it's so worth stressing that because as we start to talk about individual characters, the level of violence here, and it's within a community, it's Black-on-Black black violence, to sort of put it bluntly there, as to, well, what are the forces, what are the circumstances, where these guys all growing up more or less in the same neighborhood in the same way, one takes this path, another takes that path, you know, the roads we take, if you will, and, and again, Singleton's keen awareness of that, and the fact that the odds are not promising for a lot of these guys, right, and so how do you fight against the odds, and that's a real source of tension and to some extent, inspiration within the film, you know, what you're up against and how you can respond to it. 
the gist of the story is that Lawrence Fishburne, and also wonderful to see him again, and Angela Bassett are the parents of a young man who is, you know, starting to act out or, you know, they decide between themselves that it would be better for him to live with his father, have a strong male presence to, you know, show him how to be a man. And that's one of the underlying stories that is so satisfying is, you know, it really explores this idea of, you know, what does it mean to be a good dad? And you get to see Lawrence Fishburne, you know, really show that in a lot of really, I think, touching scenes, unexpected in a way. So the son grows up to be, you know, Cuba Gooding Jr. once he gets a little bit older in the story. But in the very beginning, when Trey comes to live with his dad, he tells him, you know, go out and, you know, talk to your friends, whatever. And then he says something that sort of sets up the tone of the story, which is, you know, stuff's going to happen to your friends. So, you know, you just watch. And so, of course, as the audience member, you're thinking, okay, stuff's going to happen to all of these characters. Let's just watch. But it's a premonition that is delivered big time. I love your use of the word premonition because this film, again, has that opening section where you have all the sights and sounds and warning signs, if you will, of what's up ahead for these guys. And then that's why throughout the film, not that it's a depressing film, quote unquote, but there is the sense of, you know, again, the odds are stacked and you can see how some guys are going down the wrong path and the temptations for others and so on. And there is always a very strong sense of premonition. And I, I like to use this particular image or sense. You could be walking down a street, nothing's happened at the moment, but there's a police helicopter overhead or there's something going by or something catches your attention. And, and then you approach a street corner and again, nothing's happened yet, but you don't know when you turn that corner, will it be a car coming your way with some guys who are literally gunning for you? You know, that kind of a thing. Where even when it's relatively quiet or, or somehow at peace, there's always the sense that, well, you know, anything could happen at almost any time here and your life could change or indeed your life could end. And that's why, again, that is an inherently depressing thought, but just simply a realistic observation of the environment in which these guys are living, that, that, that it's not a very secure place to be. And within that circle of friends and acquaintances, so much could happen and so much could go wrong. And indeed, as the film unrolls, it does, it, it will. Now, one of the, the best characters in it, and I'm not sure if this was new or I just noticed it with this movie, the idea of rap stars suddenly crossing over to become movie stars. And this movie has Ice Cube in it. It's such a good role. He is so sympathetic. And I didn't notice the first couple of times I watched it, I, I noticed this time, that there's a couple of times when cars are going by with music blasting, and it's an Ice Cube song. And I, I love that sort of inside joke. I found that really uh, clever on the uh, most recent rewatching. How did you like Ice Cube, Mike, in this movie as a character? Well, Marie, here's a quick side observation What, on what, based on what you just said about, you know, uh, you think about the musicians turned actors in, in a film like this. And then, indeed, when you hear music blasting from a car radio or something, my gosh, that's that's music by the very guy we're watching now. It is a kind of inside joke. But movies have done things like that before. I love movies where and there actually have been examples of this where you, know, you have a certain musical motif in, in the soundtrack. And don't you know it like when, when a character gets in a car and starts to drive away, there on, on the car radio as they turn it on is, is the theme music for the film or something close to it. It's like, gosh, what are the odds there? Uh, I guess you don't have to worry about paying out as much money for, for music rights or anything. You just keep using it that way too. Uh, but back to your, your, your basic question. Uh, I remember when this film came out in 1991, I, I knew enough of the musicians slash performers 
you know, I, I knew the music, I'd heard it, I certainly knew the names. And like you, I was kind of struck when it first came out, oh my gosh, I knew this guy as a rapper or whatever, you know, and now here he is as an actor. And not that I was dubious or doubtful, but there's that moment of wondering, right? Like, well, gee, you know, we don't know him as an actor, how will he be? And it was so pleasant, I always use the word pleasant, it was so pleasant to think, my gosh, this guy can really act, you know, it's just like, not that I was like necessarily doubting it, but uh, the reassurance, the, the pleasant quality of, my, my goodness, he really is a good actor. Let me add one final observation here in terms of Ice Cube. The very title of the film is derived from a song by Ice Cube. So the moment you get the film's title, you know, for folks who would have followed his musical career, they would have recognized the reference. And then what, how pleasant, how, what a joy it would be to say, oh my gosh, there's Ice Cube in a role. And he's really engaging. I mean, you know, I talk a lot, we talk a lot about those actors who have it, screen presence. And you can only verbalize it to a certain extent. Certain actors have it. The camera likes them, right? The, the way, you know how people will talk that way, that somehow being photogenic or just something they come alive on camera and they just you want to look at them I always put it that way when you're looking at the film frame where does your eye go and if there's an actor who just had whether whether it's the actual physical appearance or just a vigorous personality or a combination of the two the ways in which we're drawn to certain actors and I've always thought like with Ice Cube there's something engaging immediately and absolutely just about the screen presence and the fact that the guy has real acting talent <laughs> is a bonus right it really helps so, Marie, back to your point, this really was one of the films that I think qualifies by way of a group of musicians who are writing music for movies and, yeah, like Ice Cube popping up in, in roles on screen. And now that's much more common. But I think back in that day, it did strike me and it did strike you that it was kind of unusual at that point, at least. I didn't know at the time that this was Regina King's first role. It was nice to see her a couple of years later go on to make Jerry Maguire with Cooper Gooding Jr. And again, it was like, oh, I love those two actors. I love them together. And I actually thought they walked away with that movie. I know it's supposed to be a Tom Cruise, Renee Zellweger movie, but I don't know. For me, it was really about the, the side characters, but that's a whole discussion for another day. Seeing her here in Boys in the Hood, you know, young, fresh, first film credit role. I was really impressed by her all over again really good to see. She was always great. She started out great. That's one of the pleasures of revisiting a film like this, which again, in this case, you know, we're going back to 1991. When it first comes out, well, if, if it's so early in her career, no reason why you would have been thinking about that going in to see it, right? But now, all these years later, watching it again, there's that sense of rediscovery that's almost a sense of discovery of, oh my goodness, there she is. And I know her from these later roles, as you mentioned. And Again, there are layers of pleasure involved in watching films, and you've just identified a crucial one of revisiting a film, but from a different perspective, in this sense, temporal, just all these years later, to watch it again now. Things you notice now that you wouldn't have had reason necessarily to notice then. Sometimes I'll see a young actor like that at the time, and the name wouldn't mean anything to me. And I might not even remember the name like in talking about it back in the day, right? Just like, oh, you know that, you know, the actor's playing that, you know, she was really good. But then just a few years later, so well, of course that's so-and-so, of course she's good. But that's the, you know, the, the wisdom of hindsight, cinematic hindsight in that respect. But what a what a what a joy to go back and discover or rediscover people like that in very early, very and, and there are a lot of breakthrough roles in a film like this. So you're absolutely right. If you're listening to this and you have never seen it or you're gonna watch it again. I learned recently that when John Singleton was filming this, he didn't warn any of the actors when a gunshot was going to go off. And that's why their reaction seems so natural because they don't see it coming any more than you do. But there is this sort of overarching feel of dread 
And, and some of it comes out from things that I think are handled really very deftly. For example, there, one of the friends, one of the boys in the hood is a guy in a wheelchair named Chris. And, you know, you don't know why he's in the wheelchair, but at some point when Lawrence Fishburne is trying to advise his son, you know, not to get involved with gangs and stay out of trouble, he says, you want to end up like little Chris, you want to end up in a wheelchair. And then you think, oh, that must have been from some sort of violent situation that happened off screen, but it's alluded to. And so you just get a sense for what it really was like to live in that neighborhood and, and be afraid all the time. Yeah, that ominous, moody uh, sensibility. We talked earlier about premonitions, and the film is full of that. So again, when you think about this as the breakthrough film for the actors, as we talk about them, as we said earlier, for the director too, it's his first film right out of the gate, showing he's got the, the directorial chops, if you will. And to acknowledge that, at the Academy Awards, he was nominated for Best Director. Now, he was the first African-American nominated in, in that category, like ever, right? And as if that weren't enough, he was also the youngest nominee ever. So imagine for a young Black director to have that kind of, you know, one-two punch, if you will, of being the first, you know, Black director nominated and, you know, and the youngest ever. And my goodness, what a great way to, to get going there. So this film's always had a high critical reputation that way. He was also nominated for Best Original Screenplay. So I don't know how many punches I can make here, but, you know, the one-two-three punch, if you will. This film has always had a high critical reputation. And, you know, to acknowledge that, not just that it got those Academy Award nominations for Singleton as Best Director and Best Original Screenplay and so on, but the film itself has always held that lofty reputation. Indeed, in 2002, it was listed at, on the National Film Registry. Now, we've talked about that before. It's worth underscoring. So when in 2002, this film was added to the National Film Registry, what's that mean? Well, the Library of Congress every year will put out a list of like 25 movies added to it films of lasting value. Some of them are acknowledged classics, film classics everyone would nod to. Others just have historical value or somehow there's something notable about it. So it doesn't have to be necessarily quote unquote great film, but somehow a significant film. And most significant films are great, but, but for various reasons, right? So anyway, the fact that, you know, this film comes out in 1991 and here, you know, all these years later, 2002, the National Film Registry adds it to its roster. You look over that list and it's distinguished company. So again, I know we keep returning to this, this notion of a, a breakthrough film for the director and so many of the actors, but one of lasting value. Careers are built on things like this. And when you're on the National Film Registry, decades later, people will scroll down that list and say, oh, you know, Boys in the Hood, you know, here's a movie that really counted, that really mattered and still does. There are so many threads to follow in the movie. I feel like we're kind of giving it the short shrift by having to move on to our next movie. But Mike, was there anything you wanted to say about Lawrence Fishburne, Cuba Gooding Jr. dynamic? Because it really is the heart of the movie before we switch gears. Just simply to agree with you that, that you know, the dynamic is there. This is a film that's built on relationships between the characters and yes, indeed, between the actors. When, when actors have that kind of good chemistry going it's just a pleasure to watch the banter back and forth. So yeah, I mean, these are two actors who really are at the top of their game here. And with that, just to say that if you have not seen the film, please watch it. If you have seen the film, please watch it again. And unfortunately, we did lose John Singleton too early. He passed in 2019. So I would say this was his best movie, though. What do you think, Mike? This is a complicated uh, equation. Why do I say that? Um, this is his best film, to agree with you. He's made films since then, Poetic Justice, Higher Learning, et cetera. He's made some worthwhile films since then, but somehow his career, he kept working, but I don't think he ever quite reached the same heights as he did with his very first film. 
Other films have their, their merits, things worth praising, some of the others, so-so. And so he always kept working as a director, but and it's hard. This is why it's a complicated equation. It's hard to entirely explain why. Why he started off with such a great film, and then after that made some pretty good films, like some of them more than others. But I don't know. What do you think, Marie? Because he did somehow, it's just the later films aren't as impressive. What do you think? I think this is his most personal film, and it shows. And then he went on to be, you know, a pro, a technician. But I don't know that any of his subsequent projects were as personal for him. That's just my guess. It's more than a guess. It's also my, my notion, too, that this first film is drawn from the world he knew so well. With the later films, he's totally professional as a director. He's really gifted. So technically, nothing to quibble with. But I think you're right, Marie. Some of the films are more, if I say conventional, I just mean like well-made films. They don't have as much of a personal stamp. So that's sort of what you're getting at, because I agree with that. I would also say that if Spike Lee handed the baton to John Singleton, I think Ryan Coogler probably got it from John Singleton. I don't think you get to Ryan Coogler without those two directors who came before him, which, again, a topic for another show. So now we're going to switch from the urban to the rural and talk about Daughters of the Dust, which I did not see when it came out, also in 1991. Julie Dash apparently made quite a splash at Sundance when she showed this movie. But I have discovered it, you know, later because we do talk about it in our Women in Film class as an example of a type of community that people might not know existed. Where do we start with Daughters of the Dust, Mike? Well, let's start with the director herself, because this is a case where biography segues very much into the subject matter of the film. And also, building on what we were saying about John Singleton, who got such a great start to his career with Boys in the Hood, how you get launched, how, you know, for young black filmmakers in particular. And it's, it's a, a wonderful coincidence that these films came out in the same year, 1991. Julie Dash was born in 1952. What's notable about this first film, which we'll get to presently, is that it's the first feature film directed by a black woman that was distributed nationally, I mean, in a theatrical sense. And so that's significant that, that, you know, it's a small budget film, it's independent, but you know what? Here's a black woman director, she makes the film and it gets national theatrical distribution. And that was so unheard of at that point, basically. So what's her background? She grew up in a public housing project in New York City. Here's the direct biographical link that I would be making. Her father's family was from a Gullah or Geechee community in the Sea Islands off of South Carolina and, and Georgia. And we'll talk a lot more about that as we get into the film. But she knew the subject matter just from family stories, just as a girl growing up in New York. And she's in a very urban environment, New York City Public Housing Project. But she hears these stories of not just the rural South, but these Sea Islands are so isolated, so traditional in terms of the culture. It is another world or was another world, if you will. Anyway, by way of how you have um, young Black directors, we talked earlier about Spike Lee, yeah, I loved your use of handing off the baton. So it goes to John Singleton. The sense of, and this is also, and this is for any young director at this point, whether white, black, whatever, of college-educated directors who are studying film in school. And of course, for Marie and myself, I mean, we love to talk about that, you know, teaching film and inspiring students and all those good things. Anyway, cutting to the, the quick on this, Julie Dash received her BA in film production from the City College of New York. She then went to Los Angeles and studied at the American Film Institute. And then she got her MA in film from UCLA. So check those boxes. This is like, you know, for a director of her generation of whatever background or color or what have you, the fact that, yeah, if you're young and, and aspiring to be a filmmaker, 
This is like the path a lot of people were taking. When she's in LA, she becomes friendly with other filmmakers like the older director whom I absolutely idolized, Charles Burnett. You know, she gets to know folks like that. It's a tight filmmaking community. And here's something she said about this period in her life and what she was hoping to do with her first film. This is Julie Dash. I always knew I wanted to make films about African-American women, to tell stories that had not been told, to show images of our lives that had not been seen. And so that's really a kind of inspirational point of departure for her, just simply to tell it her way. Now, I'll hand it back to you, Marie, at this point, but then I think we will be talking about not just the story itself, but how it's told. I saw this film when it first came out, and it made a big impression on me. And because of the Sundance recognition, we knew about it as a film to watch. And when I watched it, I thought, this is a new director. This is a really fascinating subject. I, I have not seen a film quite like this before. Well, the crux of the story is that, you know, this group of people are living in this island off of the Carolinas, I believe. And, you know, there is a matriarch who has kept track of the old ways. And she has containers that, you know, have artifacts that she has, you know, kept and have significance to her. And one of her daughters says, you know, referring to this, that, you know, they come from that. So they are the daughters of that dust that she has, is, you know, the keeper of. It's very effective. It is very specific to the area. And Mike, I'm going to hand it over to you to talk about how the story is told. Okay, the story does not have a conventional linear narrative. And this is how Julie Dash explains it, quote, I realized that I could not structure it as a normal Western drama. It had to go beyond that. And that is where I came up with the idea of structuring the story in much the same way that an African griot would recount a family's history. The story would just kind of unravel. The story uh, is something that's really important here, but it's going to unravel through the, a series of vignettes, if you want to call them that. And so that's how she describes it. As it unravels, this is a story unraveling on St. Helena Island off of South Carolina. In the swampy waters around it, there's a figurehead from a ship, which symbolically represents a ship that would have first brought slaves to this country. There are various versions of this particular story. Namely, that when the ship came over and the slaves got off and they saw plantation life, that some of them waded back into the water. In one version of the story, they walked into the water and deliberately drowned themselves rather than enter into slavery in a plantation system like that. In another version of the story, they walked on the water all the way back to Africa. So this is a story that freely mixes mythology, history, and of course, very personal history in terms of family life. And the story takes place in 1902, right at the point where the Great Migration is getting underway of Blacks moving from the rural South to the urban North. And that's the point of tension within the film. Who's living in that traditional community wants to stay there, but a lot of other folks, and almost everyone's related to everyone on this island, getting on a boat, another kind of boat, and they're heading to the mainland and they're heading North. So Maria, some of the characters you mentioned, the matriarch warns them that it's not all gonna be milk and honey where you're going. But these characters, particularly the younger ones, they thought, we need opportunity. We need a future. It's not here. As much as we have a strong family life on a traditional uh, you know, community, uh, that's all there. It's all solid. But you know what? We're moving into the 20th century. Maybe we need to move on, meaning move northward. Yeah, that is the crux of the story, that some go on to what's next. Some stay behind with their traditions. And the cinematography is unbelievable. I want to also mention that just in terms of, you know, and then what happened about three years later, there would be a TV show kids called Gullah Gullah Island. 
I'd actually seen that with my daughter and kind of knew something about that from the TV show before I ever discovered Daughters of the Dusk. So, you know, if you're looking for a backdoor way in, check out those old episodes of Gullah Gullah Island because they it takes a more playful and hopeful uh, rather than realistic and gritty approach to the subject, but it still gives you an idea of the area and the people and the customs. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to check out our other podcasts at dragondigitalradio.podbean.com and also under Dragon Digital Radio on Spotify and Pandora. And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.